You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Jakob Mötchengamma. Jakob is a Danish human rights lawyer specializing in civil and political rights with a special emphasis on freedom of expression. He is the CEO of Justitia, a judicial think tank that promotes rule of law and fundamental individual rights. Jakob also teaches at the University of Copenhagen, and uh, he is based in Copenhagen in Denmark. Welcome, Jakob. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm I'm here to talk to Jakob about his book, which is, I believe, about to be released soon. Is that right? When is it? When is it coming out? It's coming out on the eighth of February in the US, and then the UK edition uh, on the seventeenth of March. Okay, marvelous. So, um, and I've I've been I've read a review copy. It's called. Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. And it is a very ambitious, a very ambitious and detailed look at issues involving free speech uh, at every stage in history from the Greeks, from the ancient Greeks up to the present day. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. And um I'm going to begin by reading a passage from the book. And I'd like to read this passage, which is from a chapter called The Totalitarian Temptation, because I think it raises a lot, a number of the central issues. And um, so the, the setting here is, actually, I'll begin from the start of this section. Um, the Third Reich. The Wall Street crash of 1929 hit the vulnerable German economy um, hard, and the unemployment rate soon skyrocketed to more than 30%. An increasing number of Germans longed for a strong man to steer them out of the crisis, and the Nazi share of the vote surged from a paltry 2.6% in the federal election of 1928 to a whopping 37.2% in July 1932. Although they never won the majority, the NSDAP was by far the biggest party in the Reichstag. After much political jockeying and hesitation, President Hindenburg appointed Hitler to Chancellor on January 30, 1933. Hitler had barely been sworn in before he took aim at free speech, enforcing a ban on the communist paper Die Rote Fahne and the social democratic paper Vorwärts. Then, on February 4th, an emergency decree for the protection of the German people, was passed, giving the police authority to ban political meetings and demonstrations and making it illegal for newspapers to publish incorrect news, as defined by the Nazi Minister of Interior. 
Goebbels could hardly contain his glee. Now we have a lever against the press, and bands will pop up like crazy. All those Jewish organs which caused us so much trouble and grief will disappear at once from the streets of Berlin. At this point, Hitler's attack on the press was merely an escalation of the draconian press policy that Weimar's democratic politicians had set in motion, and that the mainstream press had backed before they came under assault. And on February 27th, he was provided with a perfect pretext to remove the remaining constitutional obstacles once and for all, when the Reichstag was set on fire by the communist Marinus van der Lubbe. Though historians still debate the Nazis' involvement, the Nazis certainly took advantage of the situation. This is a God-given signal, Hitler raged, practically foaming at the mouth. If this fire, as I believe, turns out to be the handiwork of communists, then there is nothing that shall stop us now crushing out this murderous pest with an iron fist. On the very next day, Hitler pushed Hindenburg to issue two emergency decrees. As a defensive measure against communist acts of violence endangering the state, they immediately suspended seven constitutional rights, including habeas corpus and the freedoms of expression, press and assembly, until further notice. Within days, the the regime arrested 4,000 communists, jamming them into makeshift prisons in run-down factories, bars and basements. According to the Nazis' reinterpretation of the law of Schutzhaft, or protective custody, these political prisoners could be detained indefinitely and without a court order. The next targets were social democrats, union officials and deviants like homosexuals. Hitler's brutal crackdown on the left was widely applauded and contributed to his popularity among many Germans who viewed Marxism as an existential threat to the nation. An editorial in a Bavarian newspaper concluded, This emergency decree will find no opponent despite the quite draconian measures. The consequences of the most acute struggle against communism have finally been drawn. On March 20th, Heinrich Himmler announced the opening of Germany's first concentration camp in a former gunpowder factory near near Dachau for people who threaten the security of the state. Around 100,000 were detained in protective custody during 1933. Most were released within two years, but an estimated 600, and probably more, died from torture and mistreatment. Three days later, Hitler's government changed the constitution with the Enabling Act, which allowed laws passed by the government to bypass both the Reichstag and the president. With the votes of the Catholic Centre Party and the German National People's Party, Hitler had paved the way for the unopposed dictatorship of the Nazi regime. Most of the deputies who would have protested the Enabling Act were already in prison, concentration camps or exile. But the Social Democrat Otto Wells stood firm. In this historical hour, we German Social Democrats pledge ourselves to the principles of humanity and justice, of freedom and socialism. No enabling act gives you the power to eradicate ideas which are eternal and indestructible. Yet Hitler had not only the votes, but the rhetorical comeback to checkmate Wells. If Wells was so enthusiastic about equal rights and free speech, why hadn't he defended the Nazis when they were in opposition? You should have recognised the beneficial power of criticism when we were in the opposition, 
Back then, our press was verboten and verboten and again verboten. Our, author- our assemblies were banned. We were not allowed to speak, and I was not allowed to speak. And that went on for years. And now you say criticism is beneficial. Hitler never intended to allow political dissent. He had made that clear as early as 1920. But the many examples of anti-Nazi repression provided a facade of legitimacy for Hitler's systematic repression and helped deflect criticism since he could use the potent weapon of whataboutery and accuse the social democratics, uh, democrats of hypocrisy and double standards. This helped him justify his popular crackdown so that it appeared in a less authoritarian light. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit. According to rich historian Richard J. Evans, legislation was important in consolidating Nazi rule. The regular courts and the already existing state apparatus could be turned into powerful weapons against dissent once unleashed from the restraints of constitutional freedoms. From 1932 to 1937, the number of prisoners in Germany increased from 69,000 to 122,000, around 23,000 of whom were labelled political prisoners. In 1937 alone, the German courts passed a staggering 5,000 255 convictions for high treason. This was fueled by a battery of increasingly vague and wide-ranging laws against speech crimes. The Malicious Practices Act of March 1933 banned malicious gossip, derogatory statements, jokes and rumours about the regime and its officials. The law effectively banned any criticism of the Nazi party, including subjective opinion, whether expressed in public or private. A treason law passed in April 1933 punished anyone who planned to, quote, alter the constitution with long prison sentences and even execution. A treason, um, in practice, it became an act of high treason to write, print or distribute leaflets, promoting a constitutional alteration like, say, a return to democracy. To protect the authority of Nazi officials, A December 1934 law made hate speech against leading figures in the party or the state, punishable with the possibility of a death sentence. At the height of war in 1942, a hairdresser from Munich got four years behind bars for her malicious, hateful, agitatory and base-minded comments, quote, after she had called Hitler a crazy mass murderer. In addition to laws and secret police, Informers known as block wardens kept an eye on their neighbourhoods and workplaces and reported anyone who criticised the regime, cracked a Hitler joke or forgot to raise the flag on Hitler's birthday. The regime had about 200,000 such informants in 1935. By the beginning of the war, two million Germans were keeping a vigilant eye on their neighbours. One of the most sinister forms of surveillance took place in the mandatory youth organisation Hitler Jugend, where children were pressed to inform on their own parents. Surveillance and social control were not primarily conducted by sadistic Gestapo officers raiding the homes of ordinary citizens. The bulk of the work was carried out by the ordinary citizens themselves. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Um, 
The end goal of the Third Reich was to ensure that not only people's actions, but also their innermost thoughts conformed to the Nazi ideology. The German-Jewish linguist Viktor Klemperer survived the Holocaust and famously observed that the most powerful Hitlerian propaganda tool was not speeches, posters or flags. It was the gradual erosion of the German language. Nazism permeated the flesh and blood of the people through single words, idioms and sentence structures which were imposed on them in a million repetitions and taken on board mechanically and unconsciously. Words can be like tiny doses of arsenic. They are swallowed unnoticed, appear to have no effect, and then after a little time the toxic reaction sets in after all. Without independent media, opposition parties, civil society, trade unions or tolerance of dissent, the antidote to the linguistic arsenic of constant Nazi propaganda was seriously diluted. Still, Just how effective the Nazi propaganda was remains disputed. Richard J. Evans argues that the incessant Nazi indoctrination helps explain the shocking brutality of the German war machine once set in motion in 1939, and by extension, the even more shocking brutality of the Holocaust. Studies have shown that Nazi propaganda was most effective on young Germans, more impressionable, with little experience of living in a free society, and subject to institutional indoctrination in schools and Hitler Youth organizations. And in districts where anti-Semitism was already prevalent before the Nazi takeover. On the other hand, the effects of propaganda targeting the population at large in the radio, cinema and press seem to have been less significant, with the working class and Catholics proving most resistant to Nazi ideology. By the summer of 1940, the Nazi intelligence agency, the Sicherheitsdienst, reported widespread criticism of propaganda, diminishing interest in the press, and distrust in the official military reports. In other words, Nazi propaganda did not succeed in brainwashing all Germans into becoming committed Nazis or anti-Semites, even if the non-committed were mostly given to passive resignation rather than life-threatening active opposition, as Aldous Huxley observed in 1936. Propaganda gives force and direction to the successive movements of popular feeling and desire, but it does not do much to create these movements. The propagandist is a man who canalizes an already existing stream. In a land where there is no water, he digs in vain. It would be dangerously reductionist to explain Germany's democratic collapse and Nazi takeover solely through the lens of free speech and censorship. These were but some among many complex factors that led to the cataclysm of the Third Reich. But the fact that the Weimar Republic unsuccessfully tried to stem the tide of totalitarianism with illiberal laws of increasingly harsh censorship should at the very least give pause to those who demand that democracies today must also sacrifice free speech to counter organized hatred. So should Hitler's use of Weimar Germany's illiberal precedents to destroy the democracy they were supposed to protect. If one concludes that the genocidal incitement of the Third Reich requires official intolerance of intolerance today, 
the legacy of communism poses some awkward questions. Um, like Hitler, Lenin and Stalin built a ruthless one-party state, which combined strict censorship with incessant propaganda, demonizing specific groups as enemies of the people, singled out for punishment, deportation to concentration camps, or even liquidation. In fact, the global spread, duration, and death toll of communism exceeded that of fascism and Nazism. But if most liberal democracies have found that countering communism is possible without resorting to the censorship and repression of previous eras, might robust democracies not also be able to withstand the threat from resurgent Nazism and adjacent far-right extremism without compromising the most essential democratic freedom of all? Sorry, that was a much longer passage than I was actually planning to read. But <laughs> once I started reading it, it seemed like uh, it seemed that there wasn't a uh, I needed to get to a good point to, to end um, and tie, tie it together. Um, that was a slightly abridged version. So I did skip over a few paragraphs and uh, sentences along the way. But I thought maybe we could start with that most extreme example. Sure. Um, because one of the things that you say in the book is that um, once, well, two things you say is that censorship is an unreliable weapon in the fight against the enemies of democracy. And also that um, once the immune system of free speech is compromised, more encroachments are sure to follow. And that pay rather than preventing the rise of authoritarianism and totalitarianism, it actually enables and facilitates that rise. Yes, that that that, that is true. I mean, I, I, of course, don't want to argue that uh, that it is inevitable when whenever democracies, so you're in the UK now, uh, there's a, a bill uh, that, that is sort of on the books to to sort of uh, rein in free speech uh, online on, on social media, for instance. I do not mean to argue that if that bill is passed, then within five years, uh, British democracy will be dead. Um, but but I will but but I try to show that some of the most famous examples, um, at least my reading of history, is that, uh, for instance, what I call the the, the Weimar fallacy, something that I've taking from, from, from the Professor Eric Heinze, um, uh, my reading at least of what transpired is, is not that the, the Weimar democracy did not do enough to, to, to shut down Nazis uh, from, from, from speaking. In fact, they, they did a lot to, to, uh, to limit free speech and ultimately those weapons were used by the Nazis themselves. To, to uh, liquidate the democracy they were supposed to to uh, to protect. So so in that sense, I, I think democracies are playing a dangerous game uh, whenever they they insist on limiting free speech to protect democracy. Yeah, I should be clear that your argument is not um, that it was um, the the censorship and the shutting down of free speech in the Weimar democracy that led to Nazism. Um, you're not drawing any kind of of um, cause, and you're not making a cause and effect argument of that kind. But what you're saying in your detailed chapter on on totalitarian regimes is that uh, censorship do- can't, cannot stop totalitarianism from taking hold. 
um, it's not a good way of of preventing it. It it's a very dangerous. It's very dangerous because um, if total if the totalitarians do come to power, it becomes then much easier for them to clamp down because the mechanisms for censorship are already all in place and have been agreed to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the um, you know the the the, the Reichstag uh, fire decree that suspends um, free speech and, and other constitutional freedoms is you know that is is something that is enshrined in the Weimar Constitution in order to protect <laughs> democracy, but it becomes a, a very very potent weapon in the hands uh, of the Nazis. And also, there have been all these uh, all these uh, draconian um, emergency laws to curb the press, sort of basically giving um, governments um, administrative powers to close down for weeks or months uh, newspapers that they think are spreading fake news or extreme ideas. And and as that quote that you read from from Hitler showed, you know, he, he is very cleverly using that as an argument uh, against the, the social democrats when the social democrats are, 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 are trying in vain to uh, to oppose uh, the 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 Nazi takeover, um, he he uses that. Of course, you know, Hitler is very very has has always been very clear that free speech is is an ideal that he loathes, uh, and 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 so do so you know the other other leading Nazis uh, as well. But but even you know some of the, the the leading Nazis, like Goebbels, like Julius Streicher, and even Hitler, uh, uh, have been subjected to rather draconian censorship. So so Hitler was was banned from speaking in in several lender. Uh, Goebbels um, started the, the 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 Nazi newspaper Der Angriff, and he at one point sort of gloated that he that his Der Angriff was the most uh, frequently censored newspaper in, in Germany and, um, and Julius Streicher, who was later executed, uh, uh, after, after the Nuremberg trials because he, uh, because of his incitement to, to genocide against, against Jews in 1929, he was, he was convicted to prison for sort of these, uh, anti-Semitic blood libels. Uh, sentenced to two months in prison, and he was sort of greeted by his supporters. And and less than a year later, the Nazis won a huge electoral victory in Nuremberg, where the the very the very city where he where where Streicher was was convicted and where he was a big Nazi leader. So so to me, this suggests that <laughs> that um, this idea, this very popular European a- idea, that the lesson of fascism is that. You know, we need to have a militant democracy uh, is is one that rests on on very shaky uh, historical ground. You talk about, um, I mean, I don't mean to imply that that um, Trump and Hitler should be equated, um, <laughs> but uh, you also have an um, an interesting chapter on looking at the differences between the the short lived, hopefully. I'm just touching some wood here. Um, the sh- uh, Trump's short-lived uh, single-term presidency, um, contrasting with Vladimir Putin's um, long-term hold on power, and 
You say that although free speech enabled Trump to come to power, it's also what defeated Trump. Um, whereas it's censorship in Russia that is allowing Putin to hold on, hold on to power for so long. Could you say more about about that? Yeah, well, I think the, the Trump presidency uh, really changed, you could say, elite political and institutional attitudes to free speech, especially on social media. So up until 2016, uh, social media platforms were seen more as sort of liberating and on the right side of, <laughs> of history, if you like. Uh, I mean, it, the, the, the positive feeling about social media platforms probably culminated around sort of the Arab uprisings. Um, but, but I think it was very much the, the Trump presidency that, um, that gave such a, a shock to sort of elite attitudes towards social media. And suddenly they were seen as, as being, uh, directly responsible for Trump's, uh, victory due to sort of unmediated spread of fake news and hate speech and, uh, and, and, and so on and, 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 and so on. Um, but what I try to argue is that, um, that, uh, and I think certainly Trump's appeal on, on Twitter and, and social media, I, I think it would be, uh, of course it had appeal, of course, of course it helped, uh, his appeal with, with, uh, with some voters and it played a role in his rise, uh, to the, to the presidency. But, uh, even though Trump, uh, was constantly threatening, uh, political opponents with locking them up and, and sort of to clamp down with libel laws on, uh, on media, on, on the so-called fake news media and whom he designated, uh, enemies of the people and so on. He was, he was essentially powerless to do so because, uh, the, the first amendment in the United States is, is, is sets a very, very high bar for uh for government restrictions of free speech spe- specifically when it comes to to <laughs> to leading politicians and also just because there's a culture of free speech in the United States that would not allow him to uh to 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 basically subvert those free speech norms even if even if he he tried to do so and even if some of his even if you saw worrying polls that suggested that Republicans, a plurality of Republicans were sort of willing to go along with Trump's idea that, that the court should be able to punish um, uh, media that, that wrote bad things about him. Um, but, but essentially he was, he was subjected to criticism night and day, you know, uh, you know, open up <laughs> on any given day of the Trump presidency. You could, you could go to Washington Post, New York uh, Times, uh, MSNBC, CNN, uh, NPR, and so on, and you would find bucket loads of criticism of of Trump, and uh, and you could also find bucket loads of criticism of Trump on social media, uh, in, uh, in 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 popular culture, uh, and so on, and and uh, he was powerless to do anything about it, uh, except sort of moaning and and, and moping. Uh, on the other hand. You, Vladimir Putin has been in charge of, of Russia since 2000, and during that time, you know, he's not, he's, he or his henchmen have 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 been behind uh, murders of journalists um, uh, and and ever widening draconian laws that have all but eliminated sort of independent critical journalism have 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 more or less eradicated uh, civil society, even human rights organizations. 
his political opponent, his most uh, one of his most important political opponents, is now in jail after you know a a, a kangaroo trial. So so basically, the lack of free speech is what has kept Putin in power. I would argue in in Russia, whereas whereas free speech might have helped Donald Trump. Uh, rise to prominence, but also very much played a role in persuading a majority of Americans that he was unworthy of another term in the White House. Of course, uh, things may change in in 2024, uh, but but he 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 was unable to even even though he had a very illiberal impulses. He the free speech was was a crucial part of the reasons why. He was unable to impose those impulses on on America. Yeah, I I I remember when um so when Trump was um sworn in, there was a comedian. I've now forgotten which comedian it was, but I will see if we can look it up and add it to the show notes later. Um, he stood in front of the American flag with his hand on his heart. And there was the national anthem sort of playing softly in the background, and he took this oath to, to to ridicule and make fun of every aspect of Trump and his administration for the next four years. So help me God. And I was um, I was watching that from India, and uh, as one of my Indian friends pointed out, it would be. Sorry, I wasn't actually in India. Um, I'm misremembering, but I, I was talking to one of my Indian friends, and he said, "Just imagine if that were possible in India. It would you you couldn't stand up in front of the Indian flag and and say the same kind of thing about Modi." And no. you know, um, the the laws in India, the suppression of free speech in in India, um, some of those laws were were you know. A, applauded by people because they were prevent, uh, uh, maintaining religious harmony by preventing people from, for example, offending religious sentiments. Uh, but those same laws were used against the Indian independence fighters and are now being used against Modi's opponents. Yeah, okay. no, I, I think that uh, and it's also something that I detail in the book how, so, so you have... Um, for instance, in 1921, uh, Gandhi is sentenced to six years in prison for, for sedition after writing a number of, of newspaper articles. And uh, so, th- so that's a law against sedition that had been introduced into the Indian Penal Code by, by uh, British colonial masters. And they also introduced laws against enmity against various uh, groups uh, of, of the population and also uh, and also basically introducing sort of a blasphemy law uh, to... To appease um, to appease uh, various groups, religious groups, so, and 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 they so they were used by the British basically to to crack down on on the independence movement and are now being used by by uh, the Modi government to to crack down on you know uh, a young climate activist um, on academics on on, on students on, uh, and I think. It, it's really, really sad to see what is going on in, in India as, as the world's largest democracy. To see the degree to which free speech is being subverted, uh, and 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 that uh, that um, colonial era laws are, are are being used in that process. It feels to me as though um, so. There's uh, there's often a kind of sense that there's 
um, some kind of crisis of hate speech, etc. And it's serious now. Too many people are saying bad things. We have to shut it down. And I feel quite the opposite. Hey, over here is a real crisis. Um, you know, this is a real threat in Modi's India, also for people who are in Putin's Russia. And um, the one kind of the one sort of effective means of fight back that um, opponents have is taken away if you don't have free speech. Um, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I think it's, free speech is an extremely difficult principle for human beings to get their heads around. And, you know, free speech is very a compelling ideal when it is being used to further uh, underlying ideas that you sympathize with, especially if they are being used to sort of further, um, to, to counter something that is obviously unjust. So, so for instance, the civil rights movement in the U.S. was extremely influential in expanding the First Amendment to its current status. And and when you fight for racial equality at a time when there were when when there was American apartheid, where where you know if you were uh, if you were John Lewis, a later congressman, you could be arrested for demonstrating with a sign that said "One Man, One Vote." Where if you were protesting peacefully against segregation in the South, you would be attacked by police officers with dogs and so on. Then free speech becomes sort of uh, <laughs> very appealing, and and you really sense it uh, with every fiber of your body. But then you know when you go. Uh, to 2017, uh, and you have hooded um, KKK members in Charlottesville uh, uh, um, protesting uh, for white for the reintroduction of white supremacy. Basically, then uh, suddenly free speech feels very much like a very abstract ideal. And why again should you be uh, should you be upholding this principle just because? Uh, uh, the potential danger that uh, somehow down the road, if you undermine this, it might be used against uh, against others, and 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 that's uh, and and that's why we see again and again through throughout history that people who support free speech um, will will tend to turn around and say, well, in this specific instance, we need to have uh, you know an exception. It's what I call Milton's curse because John Milton. The, the the famous author of Aeropagitica, which who who sort of argued against censorship and in and in favor of press freedom. But when you read it, uh, this uh, um, book carefully, you you find out that John Milton really was making quite a narrow case for press freedom. It was basically uh, he he believed in press freedom for sort of mainline Protestants and not for atheists. Or and especially not Catholics, and he was in favor of harsh blasphemy laws uh, and so on. Um, and, and unfortunately, this idea, this uh, this practice of, of of being selective about free speech, is something that we see again and again throughout history. And even some of the greatest heroes of, of free speech, like Voltaire, for instance, uh, we see it with him. Uh, we see it with some of the American founding fathers who who uh, who, who introduced the Sedition Act. In 1798, uh, and 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 so on, as, and so forth. And and I think you know, this is something 
that uh, is just natural. I think it's hardwired into the human brain, and and it becomes very difficult to to fight against it. Uh, but but if we if we want to have a strong culture of free speech, which I believe is ultimately, uh, you know, essential. If if you know if you want strong legal protections, you 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 first need a strong cultural um, protection or. Uh, yeah, a strong culture of free speech where a critical mass of a given population supports the idea that people with whom they have very, very, very strong disagreement should nonetheless have the right to 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 air their views. I think that's um, essential for free speech. Um, a little footnote on Milton for the benefit of listeners, because um, uh, our magazine, Ario Magazine, and this is the Ario podcast, um, is named after. Um, Milton's Areopagitica. And um, Milton's um, protest when he wrote the Areopagitica in 1644, it was published, was against pre-publication censorship, um, the the so-called licensing, the licensing act, which would introduce a government monopoly on printing presses. There were only four in royal hands. And also all works would be read by a censor before publication. So Milton uh, believed that it should be possible to uh, prosecute people for um, blasphemy, uh, obscenity and sedition, etc. in their writings after publication. What he didn't want is people deciding before publication. So obviously he wasn't the strongest defender of free speech, but he was a stronger defender. He was a strong defender for his time, and the arguments in Areopagitica are many of them are more radical. The implications of them are more radical than Milton himself realized or wished, and that's why we named our <laughs> named our magazine after that work. And I, um, when the Licensing Act lapsed in 1694. There was a massive flourishing of um, uh, of journalism. It was really the be- beginnings of journalism as we know it, um, i.e., not just kind of one-off uh, pamphlets or broadsides, but but regular journalistic publications, daily or weekly or monthly publications. There were other factors such as as um, some. Um, Technical adv- technological advancements in printing, but mostly it was when the licensing acts lapsed um, that just gave people the freedom to start printing things. And one of the things they started printing was journalism, and it was really the beginning of journalism as we know it um, in the UK. So, um, sorry, just a, yeah. a small footnote there. Yeah, well, well I think. Uh... Uh, that there's lots of great pros in in uh, area Pajitska. um but I think you know if if you I I, I think that he uh, it's it's true that he uh, only defended um, against uh, pre-publication uh, censorship, but I think even there he was not on board when it came to uh, to 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 Catholics, uh, as he said, I mean not tolerated popery and open superstition which as it extirpates all religions and civil supremacies, so itself should be extirpated. Uh, and of course, uh, when it came to post-publication censorship, he, uh, he, uh, he, he even uh, favored book burnings. So he, 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 uh, he, he, he referred to the fire and the executioner. 
Um, and then, uh, as you rightly said, the, the, the Licensing Act uh, lapsed uh, finally for good in, in 16, uh, well, effectively 1695. And that was very much due to the work of John Locke, who, who, who lobbied um, uh, members of, of parliament with, with some arguments that were probably more to do with the, that were more commercial than, than, than principled in nature, but, but nonetheless. But even so, uh, I mean, I would argue that when it, when it, when it comes to the, to the UK, you really have to get all the way into sort of the, uh, the second half of the 19th century before, um, before, before the commoner, the ordinary person has a safe and secure footing to, to ride on because, um, one of the, one of the big, uh, um, ideas, uh, of, of the book is that basically there are two concepts of free speech that have been in constant clash since uh, antiquity. And that one is the sort of egalitarian free speech, which has its roots in, roots in the Athenian democracy. The other is a more elitist uh, version of free speech, which had, which has its roots in, roots in the, uh, uh, in, in Roman republicanism. And, and, and in Britain, I think, um, elitist free speech has, has, has always, or, or at least for, for most of its history, been what, what dominated. So, so there's always been this dread of uh, the ordinary uh, person being allowed to radical political and, and religious ideas. And so even after 1695, you could be subjected to very harsh punishments if you were, uh, you know, if you were a Unitarian or if you were uh, criticized uh, the, the government uh, in, in, seditious, in seditious ways. But I, uh, of course, I certainly don't want to um, sort of neglect John Milton's uh, impact on the history of free speech, but I would say that his contemporaries, the levelers, uh, people like uh, John Lilburn, Richard Overson, I think advanced much more radical ideas of free speech. Uh, they they both, if you read them carefully, I would, I would say you can find in there both criticism of pre-publication censorship licensing, but also post-publication censorship, and also they believed in something like uh, uh, universal toleration uh, and in sort of quite egalitarian uh, free speech when it came when it came to to, uh, to to politics. So I think that their their ideas on free speech were much more progressive than that of John Milton, and they and they were contemporaries. And of course, John Milton sadly ends up acting as a censor himself, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the uh, the, the, the big uh, ironies of the history of free speech that this sort of uh, person who, who did so much to attack the institution of censorship ends up sitting there with the, with the red ink himself, even though by some accounts he was a fairly mild censor compared to many others. Yeah, I think it's, it's um, Milton is a very good example of um, um, the, the limitations of the power of the author's intention um, and I'm not a postmodernist, but I do believe the author is dead. <laughs> Long live the reader. Um, because I, I see this both in, in Aripogitica and in Paradise Lost, that what Milton is wants to say and what the major thrust of his argument is, is constantly undercut by the radical implications of some of the things that he is arguing for, for and the power of that of of his language uh when he does so um 
even though you know that's that's not the effect that he intended to have and it doesn't reflect his views um as he said of paradise lost the reader is too frequently of the devil's party so my my feelings about it are that it's not he didn't intend it as a um a an impassioned defense of free speech. But the parts in which he is defending free speech are the strongest parts in a literary sense. Um, and they're very powerful and they suggest a much more radical interpretation than he himself gave them or wanted people to give them. Yeah, no, certainly. And if you, if you sort of, um, if you, if you, if you, if you pick and choose, if you like, uh, the sort of anti-censorship, um, uh, prose of, of Milton and you sort of, uh, detach it from, from his particular religious, uh, agenda, then it becomes extremely uh, powerful. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you on that, uh, certainly. And, and, and that's why, uh, I think, um, he should be lauded, uh, of course, for, for writing what he did. I just think, I, I personally think that it's a shame that the levelers, have been, if not mm-hmm. forgotten, then they they don't occupy the same position uh, in in the in the history of free speech, and that's because while you know Milton became <laughs> became a censor, they were basically exiled or put in prison and threatened with uh, with death and, yeah. and, and torture for, yeah. for their radical for their radical ideas. Um, so so, um, but you know, we we see. We, even before Milton, of course, we also see some of the same. You could take a, a, perth, a person like uh, like Martin Luther, uh, who, who did much for freedom of conscience. Uh, so when he stood at the Diet of Worms and, and he basically refused to back down and, and said, you know, you have to convince me uh, through scripture, you know, show me show me where I'm, I'm wrong in, in the Bible. And that, you know, was interpreted by some as, you know, this was a, you know, he, Martin Luther basically says, you know, uh, you know, uh, freedom of conscience is is uh, is the ultimate um, decider uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to to religious truth, and and to some, you know, to some later on that that has been interpreted as an impassioned defense of freedom of conscience, but in re- reality, it was probably much more narrow. It was basically that that Martin Luther himself thought that he had identified truth and he would not back down. And then when he realized that sort of democratizing access to the Bible meant that a lot of people not only rejected the Catholic Church, but also rejected his version of uh, of Christianity, he became much more intolerant and ultimately ended up you know, advocating the death penalty for blasphemy and uh, death penalty for 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 Jews who d- who did not want to uh, convert to uh, to Christianity. Um, so so you see some of the same developments there. But that does not mean that one should not be able to to use the parts of of of, of Martin Luther's um, authorship that 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 points in the direction of uh, of freedom of conscience. Uh, it's just important to be aware of uh, of those parts that yeah. most decidedly do not. Yeah. So you talk a lot in the book about um, two concepts of free speech, uh, an elitist versus an egalitarian concept. And um, you also plot, uh, you talk about the idea of elite panics when every time a new technology or new 
uh, a new communication technology or new means of mass communication is invented, there is a kind of panic about the greater access of the plebs to um, speech and expression. Um, uh, you you alluded to that a bit just now with uh, um, the translation of the Bible into the um, into vulgar languages, and you cite, for example, um, fears about uh, fears about the printing press, fears about the telegraph, about the radio. Can you say a bit more about these two concepts, the elite versus the egalitarian concepts of free speech, which I think you trace back to Greece? Yeah, so so I would I would I would um, say that the origins of the egalitarian concept of free speech originated in in the Athenian democracy, which by our standards was obviously not uh, so egalitarian, given that uh, given that they had slaves, given that only uh, freeborn uh, males could participate in uh, in politics, and that women were subject to something like gender apartheid but but they but the Athenian democracy operated with basically two concepts of of free speech one called isegoria which means something like equality of speech which was exercised at the ecclesia so basically where the political decision making process where in principle at least uh, all uh, freeborn men could participate ra- raise their voice and speak on 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 those issues of public affairs and participate in the the formulation of the laws that that were binding on on the community, and then they you have the concept of parousia, meaning something like uh, uninhibited or fearless speech, and which was sort of the the cultural uh, practice of free speech. Um, uh, so so basically that um, Athenians should have a right to um, to 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 practice free speech, uh, and you could have. Uh, people like Plato and Aristotle set up shop uh, and and advocate ideas that that basically were critical of the very of the very um, democracy in which they in which they lived. Um, and I think the uh, the orator Demosthenes says it best. He, so he basically contrasts Athenian uh, the Athenian democracy with their sort of arch rivals in the oligarchic Sparta, and says that you know in uh, in uh, in Sparta. You only have the right to to praise the the Spartan constitution, um, uh, and you cannot uh, praise the Athenian uh, constitution. Whereas in in Athens, you could you could criticize the Athenian constitution and 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 praise the Spartan constitution uh, without consequences. And I think that today is still very much the litmus test of uh, free speech. Uh, the, the the right to criticize the various uh, society and political institutions under which you uh, you live. Um, you also see um, the egalitarian free speech ideals in in Pericles' funeral oration, uh, where he he sort of describes free speech as basically a, a cultural practice uh, of the Athenian democracy of of how the ideal at the, at the least is how you know they debate things before they rush into action now didn't didn't always happen like that they also did some rash things that ultimately contributed to the end of the Athenian democracy and and which is why so many people um, became suspicious of uh, egalitarian democracy but 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 nonetheless uh, of course the the trial of socrates has has given Means that we perhaps don't identify free speech so strongly with 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 Athens because 
we know of the the exception to the rule, as I would put it, uh, that 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 Socrates was was ultimately executed for his uh, for, for for his ideas after he had actually um, spread them uh, for for decades. Um, um, but I think there were specific reasons uh, specific reasons uh, for that. Uh, and then you have uh, the the uh, the more elitist free speech ideal is that of 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 Republican Rome. So whereas in in Athens, where everyone had a right to to participate in in assemblies um, in 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 Rome, the ordinary people did not have a right to address or speak in in assemblies. So it was more sort of the elite, the well educated, well off elite that exercised uh, free speech. And you see that. Someone like Cicero, who was fond of Greek culture and philosophy, but very, very critical of Athenian democracy, and sort of blamed the the idea that sort of the plebs could uh, could 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 speak uh, and and take political decisions. That was the reason, in according to Cicero, why um, why why uh, Greece uh, and Athens uh, fell from from power. Um, and I think those two ideals have have very much been in, in conflict throughout uh, throughout history. And I think for much of the Enlightenment, for instance, it was really it was really the uh, the more elitist ideal that uh, that appealed to a lot. Someone like Voltaire was very much uh, in favor of elitist um, free speech, and also the the British concept of free speech sort of uh, do away do away with pre-publication censorship, but retain uh, laws against seditious libel uh, that would ensure that you could not um, uh, sort of undermine the very foundation of uh, of, of society, uh, the, ba- the basic political and religious uh, ideals. And and so we see that again and again, whenever new technology is it sort of democratizes, uh, expands the public sphere to uh, to 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 pr- to new groups or new, or new constituents who were previously sort of passive recipients of, of information uh, and ideas. And of course, the internet and social media is just the latest, the latest um, example uh, of this. And, and of course, as with the printing press, um, as with radio and so on, it, it does cause disruption. It, it means that um, previous institutional gatekeepers uh, lose some of their power, um, and and it brings uh, you know it it takes time before sort of a new uh, set of order has uh, has emerged and and entrenched itself. And 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 go, when you live through those times, uh, it uh, it can feel as if free speech is really uprooting and destroying everything that was dear and and sacred. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sort of, I, I mean, you say at one point that it's a an inability to trust um, citizens. This, as there's this kind of belief that the normal people can't be trusted with being able to read or listen to or say whatever they like because uh, they will, first of all, there's, there's this belief that people are very, very susceptible and malleable susceptible to kind of propaganda. And then also this kind of fear of, I I guess we might think of it as a sort of verbal littering. And you talked about Steve Bannon using as a specific policy, what he called flooding the zone with shit. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that, that is a problem when you have, if you don't have complete freedom of speech, for example, on Twitter, which clearly you don't, then if you set up an alternative platform that does offer complete freedom of speech, that platform is quickly flooded with Nazis. It's as if, um, you know, instead of just allowing everybody to use the tube, you try to filter people and say, these people who you think are kind of rude can't use the tube, they have to use a different form of public transport instead. That form of public transport would quickly become unusable because, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it, in, in that passage that I read, uh, from your chapter on, um, totalitarian systems, um, including the Nazis, I think you say somewhere that speech had been, freedom of speech had been so clamped down upon in the Weimar Republic, and then, of course, even more so under the Nazis, that there was no, uh, it wasn't, and people were so intimidated by um, also the whole system of neighbor-on-neighbor uh, um, neighbor, uh, espionage that, they, that the Nazis set up, that they, that you didn't have anything to dilute the kind of arsenic of the Nazi propaganda. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, uh, I think that's. Uh, I think that's true. I think once you, um, uh, and I mean that's why totalitarian systems want absolute control of of the public sphere, is because their propaganda is not effective uh, on, unless it's accompanied by uh, hardcore censorship, and even then, it's it's not as effective as as they would have liked. Uh, to uh, to believe, um, but if I may go back to 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 the idea of this of of not trusting sort of the lower classes, I think there's a great quote. So it, it's one of uh, one of my favorite persons from the from the history of uh, of free speech in Britain, uh, um, um, Richard Carlyle, who um, who spent six years in prison for blasphemy. I think he spent a total of ten years in prison. So he was basically had this this print shop where he would. Where he would publish and sell deist works, including Tom Paine, to the lower classes, um, and so he was uh, prosecuted. And this is a speech by the uh, Attorney General, which um, justified why it was necessary to put Carlyle behind bars. He said it was necessary for quote protecting the lower and illiterate classes from having their faith sapped and their minds divested from those principles of morality. Which are so, so which are so powerfully inculcated by the Christian religion, when such terrible productions are put into the hands of those who, unlike the rich, the informed, and the powerful, are unable to draw distinctions between ingenious though mischievous arguments and divine truth, the consequences are too frightful to be contemplated. So this is 1819. This is the 19th century, uh, and still. Uh, 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 the British uh, government finds it, it necessary to, to put people in jail for selling uh, uh, books that, that criticize uh, Christianity um, uh, to, to, to the lower classes because, you know, basically the, the, the rigid class-based British society will collapse upon itself if um, the, the, the lower classes are not basically being uh, fed um, Christian uh, doctrine, and and I think that that to me is a really a strong example of of elitist free speech um, uh, uh, as as it has been um, enforced um, throughout history. In uh, uh, at the time, 
one of the most liberal states in in uh, in, in Europe because uh, the 19th century, first half of the 19th century, there was a, the culmination of a, of, of a quite an intensive backlash against uh, Enlightenment ideals uh, that had culminated with the with the with the French Revolution all over Europe. But but at least in Britain, uh, it, it it did not sort of uh, result in in uh in in absolutism as it did in in many other places uh, but but still in in one of the most liberal states in Europe this was the kind of argument that justified um the uh, the prosecution of people for selling books that today we would see as completely harmless so you say in the book that the golden age of free speech is in decline despite the unprecedented ubiquity of speech and information and you talk about what you call a global free speech recession. What makes you say that, and what are for you the the signs of that? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Because it's um, it's a bit ironic that you know you and I are sitting in two different countries, uh, um, exercising our right to free speech, um, and and you know technology. Gives us the opportunity to do that, and no government can can do can, can do anything about it. So, so in in many ways, you know, free speech, as I said, is in a in a golden age. And 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 you know, if you ask some of the the champions of free speech in history, if they were sort of revived and brought into our age, they would marvel at what is what is possible today to 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 say and and. Uh, with, without uh, consequences, but on the other hand, if you sort of look at data, you will see that uh, various uh, free speech organizations um, have documented a decline in respect for free speech and freedom of the media for more than a decade. Also, internet freedom. If you look at Freedom House for, for for more than a decade, and you see that the free speech recession goes hand in hand with a uh, democracy recession at a global level. And of course, you know, uh, since since uh, since ancient times, it's been clear that that free speech and democracy are, um, um, or rather, that sort of authoritarianism and, and free speech are do not go hand in hand. Um, so it's not surprising that the authoritarians of the 21st century, that the first a victim of their of their uh, march uh, towards power ha- has been free speech but i think what is worrying is that liberal democracies have also lost a lot of faith in in free speech and are increasingly sacrificing free speech in order to protect uh democracy and while they're doing that they are um basically creating the blueprint for instance for for online censorship, so so we have this uh, famous German uh, internet censorship law, um, which has been copy pasted by countries like Turkey, Russia, Venezuela, and uh, and others. Um, so so uh, and at the same time, we also see that the culture of free speech is under pressure. So we see that also in, in liberal democracies, um, both on the right uh, and on 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 the left, uh, sort of uh, an intolerance for. For ideas that are seen as offensive to 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 the ideals that you believe in, whether it's you know whether they're they're deemed uh, racist or um, whether it's conservatives uh, against uh, critical race theory, the 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 idea seems to be that the, the the way to fight ideas that you don't like is to try and purge them from 
whether it's from social media or universities or, uh, or uh, cultural institutions. So, so that's why I think free speech is in decline, um, even though it's still we're still living in its golden age. Yeah, thank you. It is very um, worrying. You give some recommendations um, towards the end of the book, um, some things that could be done. Um, and one example you give is Taiwan's Gov Zero initiative um, to combat disinformation without censorship. Um, since since I know that one of one of the concerns, one of pe- the concerns that people have um, is that free speech is is a dangerous thing at this time during the COVID pandemic because um, it we are allowing. Uh, anti-vaxxers and people who are promoting um, ivermectin as an as an alternative to vaccination, for example, to influence people, and that is leading to death. So that's an argument that I'm hearing a lot, um, a pro a pro censorship argument. Um, yeah, and you talk actually about how probably one of the reasons why the pandemic is as bad as it is is because of um, the lack of free speech in China. At the beginning of the pandemic, and the Chinese um, uh, silencing of whistleblowers and unwillingness to the, the the lack of transparency on the part of the Chinese government as to what was going on in the early stages, when when the pandemic could have been more easily combated. But you also talk about the um, the Taiwanese uh, example. So could you tell us in more detail about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, well uh, yeah, just briefly on on China. I think like 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 Chernobyl showed, you know, where would you rather have, you know, none of us want to experience a, a nuclear disaster, but if you were to experience one, would you rather have it in a in a country like the Soviet Union with its censorship, or in uh, in in in, uh, in Japan where where you you have uh, media freedom and and so on. I think that the countries without free speech, they tend to make things worse uh, because uh, the lack of free speech is there to protect unaccountable bureaucracies or governments that uh, are sort of, uh, will never assume responsibility for things that go wrong, but can only see themselves through the prism of, of propaganda. And and so I think that's why uh, disasters like that tend to to uh, that that um, democracies and, and and free speech tend to be an advantage, uh, even if it allows a lot of background noise and and, and people with uh, potentially harmful uh, views. Yeah, but then uh, Taiwan. I think Taiwan is just such an important example today because it basically. Uh, is a it, 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 it's it basically rejects the whole Chinese um, mainland Chinese argument saying that sort of free speech and democracy is just like uh, is incompatible with with Chinese values and these are just uh, this this is a Western concept. Now, Taiwanese democracy is extremely vibrant, um, and you what you see there is there's a young generation of sort of tech savvy activists who were disenchanted with, with Taiwanese democracy, they thought it was sort of um, not sufficiently transparent. And so they um, and, and so they, they basically occupied parliament, I believe, the Sunflower Movement. And, and, but it, rather than sort of 
ending in, in, in violence, uh, they sort of have become almost part of the government uh, with, the, with the Minister of, of Digital Affairs called Audrey Tang, but also implementing sort of tech-based initiatives that are aimed at basically ensuring a higher degree of transparency, a higher degree of participation that also operates um, in a way, for, for instance, they, they use a platform that that can be used to sort of local decision making and and um so if you you know if 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 a local community has to decide whether they want i don't know a bike a bike lane or not you know how do you decide uh, on that well there they have technology that allows those who are impacted by this decision to uh to to really uh, come together and and find solutions that um that cater to to most and that sort of create a sense of ownership of of, uh, of of local politics, and I think that's quite inspiring. They've also developed these uh, tech-oriented solutions to fighting disinformation, uh, and I think that's those are the those are the sort of the initiatives that will be necessary to create trust and create new democratic processes that are necessary in the new digital age. Because in, I think to to a large degree. Uh, the the political institutions and 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 processes that we live with now were developed at a time where uh, the world was very different from from what is it what it is now and and so so we're sort of in in between if you like um, uh, living in in the analog city and the digital city if you like and 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 and, um, and uh, I think uh, a lot of us feel very uncertain about uh, what goes on in in the digital city. We still sort of live according to the pace and rhythm uh, of the of the analog city, but I don't think there's uh, any way to avoid living in the digital uh, city. Uh, and and so we need to find the solution that can provide trust and give meaning um to 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 human beings uh, in in the digital age. And uh, it'll be tempting to sacrifice free speech on that journey, but I think free speech is an essential uh, component uh, to, to, towards that. It is kind of, it is worrying also, and you mentioned this in the book, um, the amount of uh, control that social media companies have, that, lo- that companies like um, YouTube, uh, Twitter, um, Facebook, the amount of influence they have over uh, who is what? What you can say and write and read and listen to, because uh, you can you can be thrown off those platforms, and that makes it very difficult to find an audience, unless you are somebody who has a job in legacy media, of which there are increasingly that's an increasingly small proportion of people who have something that they think is important to say important and true and they want to say and get out there um and i'm i've we've also seen a few cases in which um people have been banned from all platforms and so far they've mostly been figures who i find very unsympathetic in themselves um and i've no interest in consuming their content but i'm very concerned to see this sort of banding together or that uh, makes it very difficult for them to um, spread their content at all, except to a very small group of fans. So it seems to me like a kind of silencing. So I'm thinking, for example, of Laura Loomer, 
um, not a person who I feel is adding any, anything of great value to um, the public discourse, but the precedent concern, concerns me a lot. So she was banned from Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, um, PayPal, Patreon. Uh, I think she's not even allowed to take Ubers. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's just as much as possible was done to make it impossible for her words to reach the reach her public and i feel that 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 kind of that kind of threat hangs over all of us who do public work um who it certainly hangs over um ario we are absolutely we need we we don't have the kind of funds funds that legacy media have and we're dependent on Twitter and Facebook to promote our work and we're dependent on Patreon for our funding and on PayPal and Stripe for getting funding together. And, you know, I want us still to be able to tackle controversial topics in a in an honest way. And yeah. I think it's, you know, it's very possible that the plug could be pulled at some point. Yeah, you know, that's, that's uh, definitely a risk. You know, uh, the, the, there's different ways to look at it. One way is just to say, well, these are private platforms, so free speech uh, is not uh, an issue because they can do what they want. And, uh, you know, if you don't like it, you know, create your your own platform. I think that is too reductionist an argument. I think, I think the most compelling arguments for free speech are those that also recognize, as I alluded to a few times, the, the cultural component of free speech. So, for instance, someone like like um, like John Stuart Mill, if you like, uh, in On Liberty, he basically says something to the effect uh, that um, that that you, free speech not only depends on protection against the magistrate, but also uh, against uh, society's tendency to impose its views. On, on dissenters by through other means, so he, so he basically recognizes that that free speech can also be undermined, undercut uh, by private actors. Um, George Orwell uh, says something along the, the same lines, and and the great sort of liberal radical um, politician, nineteenth um, uh, century politician and and historian of Greece, George Grote. Um, also said the same thing. I think really going all the way back to the uh, Athenian concept of, of free speech saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, free speech basically depends on a, on a culture of tolerance and openness towards dissenting views and not, not merely on, on the government. And, and I think that, that is essential when you have huge centralized platforms. As we do now with with uh, with Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and so on. I think in an ideal world, you know, if we were still living in the blogosphere, um, it wouldn't really matter if a popular blog uh, had sort of did content moderation that um, that kicked people off, but because uh, that would not have a huge impact on, on 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 free speech as such on the internet. But when you do have huge centralized platforms, that in practice have become uh, essential for democratic debate uh, in many places, then it does become uh, problematic. Uh, and, and these platforms do uh, amass a lot of power to, uh, to determine uh, the limits. 
I don't think the answer is to say that they should be bound by constitutional um, guarantees of freedom uh, of expression. I think, uh, I think, uh, I think, first of all, uh, sorry to say, I don't think that's a perfect solution. Uh, I think it, uh, but I think, you know, if they, if we could um, have more technological solutions, for instance, so that end users themselves would be able to use filters uh, and determine what kind of content they, they want to be confronted with, that, that is more of a Solomonic solution mm. than sort of, than, than centralized content moderation um, I, I, and of course ultimately I would like to see a more decentralized uh, social media ecosystem uh, rather than having uh, these huge platforms where, where uh, most traffic runs through Jakob is there anything that uh, you have you would have liked to have said or hope that I would ask you that I haven't given you a chance to address I think you've been uh, most fair and uh, given me a, a very prominent platform. I'm proud to uh, to have come on your your podcast, and I uh, very much look forward to following the the future of Ario. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so I I highly recommend this book. It's as you might have gotten um, got a sense from the passage that I read. It's quite densely researched. Um, scholarly, but it's not written in academies. It's written in a very lively, clear, um, very lovely prose. Um, and it's also um, really ambitious, but it's not sort of scattered. They're very clear through lines of argument that um, that Jacob is tracing through history. So if you're interested in this issue, and if you're not, you bloody well should be, then um, I can I can only say I can highly recommend this book. And if it's not out by the time this podcast comes out, then uh, remember, pre-ordering is loving. Pre-orders are extremely important, especially for... Are you a first-time author? Is this your first book, Jakob? Well, it's my, fir it's my first uh, book in English. I've, I've written a couple in, in, in Danish. I've actually written a, a book on the history of free speech in Denmark. Um, but yes, this is my first uh, book in, in, in English. So yes, please do pre-order uh, and uh, that would be highly appreciated. Great. Thank you so much, Jakob. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week. <laughs>